You're listening to Citizens History, a podcast asking how history might help us to identify and address the most urgent challenges facing the United States and the world. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 2. I'm Padraig Rowan, a historian at Quincy University. Today's episode is a conversation between me and Owen Cook, who I met in Istanbul back in 2007, and who's now managing editor for the journal The American Naturalist. This was recorded on 20 July 2023 at Owen's home in Chicagoland. Our talk ranges across American history and politics, focusing especially on the Civil War and current culture wars. Owen's jumping off point is a book by Heather McGee called The Some of Us, published in 2021. And because Owen is a scrupulous and conscientious sort, he's offered a fact check of uh, one of his assertions in our conversation, that the suspension of habeas corpus by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War didn't affect very many people. It did indeed. For those who might not know, habeas corpus is an ancient principle of English law, which made its way to the English colonies of North America, and which protects against arbitrary arrest and imprisonment. Another point, Lincoln's infamous harangue of black community leaders was in August 1862, not 1863, as we were thinking. And Owen would also like to highly recommend Lincoln's Peoria speech, readily available online. As always, we invite you to become part of the conversation and welcome your comments, your criticism, and suggestions for future episodes. We're glad you're here. to have you on so that, so that we can geek out and so that we can uh, uh, try to answer the answer, answer of what I think we both agree is an important question. Mm. Why should anyone give a crap about uh, historical knowledge? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So can you start us off perhaps with, um, perhaps with giving us some background on Heather McGee? Okay. And as that as a as a starting point there, yeah. And then and then we can go. Then we can go. Yeah, definitely. So, um, like, I, I really wanted to kind of start with Heather McGee as as a jumping off point because you know I thought her her book The Sum of Us, um, you know, was so important in kind of grappling with the idea that that so many people in America are today, right? About like what it is that's. Um, like kind of getting getting a sense of who we are as a nation in the context of you know the post um you know uh, the 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 racial reckoning post the uprising for black lives that you know followed the murder of george floyd like and and i think there you know people have gone all sorts of different directions uh with this but i thought heather mcgee you know had a really interesting and thoughtful response which was to kind of point out um, how many ways society as a whole has kneecapped itself in the name of white supremacy. And, you know, we kind of hold up this, this, this idea of, like, you know, 
racial separatism or something or, or white supremacy as, as something that's putatively going to benefit white people, right? I mean, that's the point of it, theoretically. Um, but it ends up disadvantaging everybody in all kinds of ways. And um, what, uh, you know, Heather McGee kind of uh, points us towards, I think, in her book is a kind of a, a different way of appreciating, like, race relations uh, that, that specifically looks for ways that we can all benefit together, right? And, and sure, you know, uh, racism unquestionably hurts people of color far worse than it hurts white people, but it does hurt white, white people. Uh, it hurts all of society, and, you know, we can all kind of benefit from having the, um, you know, the, the sum of us, right, be greater than, uh, than its uh, constituent parts. Yeah, and there was a specific example that you brought up about how the kneecapping can happen, the yeah. own goal, you know. Oh, uh, totally, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so uh, Heather McGee's, like, point, uh, you know, that, that she kind of uh, refers to uh, uh, quite a lot in her book is uh, the draining of the pool, right, of kind of the, the common good that, um, you know, Americans have down the years built together Right, that could be enjoyed for everyone, and uh, but, and but isn't uh, because of racial disparities. So um, during the I, I want to say like forties, nineteen forties and fifties, um, municipalities all across America were building these swimming pools that would be public pools. They would be a public good that anyone could enjoy, like a library or whatever else. And then with uh, but they were typically whites only because you know the you know especially in your more, you know, kind of uh, segregated areas and what have you. Um, so with desegregation, you know, in the 1960s, there was this um, kind of impetus to, um, you know, the, the, an expectation, these would be desegregated too, like, you know, like any other public uh, uh, amenity. Um, but instead, municipalities all across America made the decision uh, to, uh, nope, we're not going to integrate the swimming pools uh, will just drain the pools, concrete them over, uh, make them into parking lots or uh, or just parks, you know, empty empty bits of grass, and you know, and this really special place whose whole point was you know to provide enjoyment and a, a common place where people of different backgrounds could come together and mix, right? Um, because white people wanted to draw the line. Uh, in an exclusionary fashion that would not bring black people or other people of color into uh, the pool, um, they chose to just forego the whole amenity of the public pool that was serving the community. Like, uh, yeah. you know, uh, just a completely bonkers uh, way of cutting off our noses despite our faces that, you know, has no rational, like, justification. Like, who cares if black people are in the pool? Like, this is no reason why, why an entire municipality should be, you know, deciding, nope, it's more important for, for the whole community to be hot and bothered all through the summer and have no place to swim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, looking back with a tolerable distance, not that much distance, but a tolerable distance between us in the 1960s, I mean, it seems mm. so... Uh, such an own goal, such a... Totally. Mm -hmm. But the larger issue at stake 
as you're as you're talking, I'm reminded of uh, of James Baldwin saying, mm. you know, "The issue isn't what's going to happen to black people in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue is what's going to happen to America." Right. And right. you know, it's just with all of the yeah, it seems like there's a there, there's real potential for the larger stakes to come up. I'm also yeah. thinking of. Uh, you know, in the wake of Obama's election, mm-hmm. 2008, the Tea Party, mm. um, you know, the kind of thing that one would think, no, actually, this is the, this is a, this is a this is a public good, mm-hmm. the the Affordable Care Act, right? Sure. Which yeah. had its roots in all sorts of uh, laboratory um, at the state level with Mitt mm. Romney, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of thing that that really did well. He got high marks for Obama mm-hmm. tries it at the national level, and all of a sudden it, it becomes a hugely partisan issue. Right? Um, how do we how do we try to get at the root of that self destructive behavior, and trying to trying to do this in an ecumenical way, trying to do this in a um, um, in a way that really will not be a partisan thing. Is that mm-hmm. even possible anymore? Or does one have to approach it as, uh, you know, as, as a partisan of red or of blue today? I mean, I think I, I don't have any, you know, silver bullets. And, you know, certainly Heather McGee, um, you know, has, has a lot of kind of forward-looking, forward-thinking um, you know, ideas and proposals uh, that she outlines in her book. But what I would, what, what strikes me is kind of a, at least a common starting point, right? That, uh, you know, for red and blue oriented uh, people to, uh, to, to, to kind of uh, start from is, you know, an appreciation of how our own history fits into this, because it's, you know, it's so, it's so easy to read our history. Uh, uh, I mean, American history writ large, as this kind of, you know, zero sum, uh, you know, point scoring exercise where, you know, you can you can denounce uh, certain figures as having been, you know, the devil incarnate and you can uh, hold up others as as heroes. And, you know, one person's heroes might be another person's villains. And, um, you know, whereas like I, I think what kind of what we often write out of the equation uh, when we're looking back at American history, are exactly those kinds of ambu- ambiguous uh, figures who kind of have had a role to play in like bringing people together and building something of common value um, to white and black and other you know categories of of Americans as well um, that you know don't necessarily fit into a cookie cutter kind of, you know, classic hero versus villain type of telling of the story. So, I mean, like, for example, you know, Ulysses S. Grant um, was a slaveholder um, for, uh, he very briefly ha- held one person in slavery. Um, his, uh, that, that's a little bit of a quibble though, because his wife did, you know, have more slaves. She was a, you know, Missourian. Um, and, Yet, you know, um, he, Grant, sort of did the right thing. I mean, he never bought this slave. It was a, you know, he, it was, this, this was a gift, right? <laughs> this is, a, a, in a slave society, you can have 
this this horrifying situation where uh, his father-in-law like gave him another person as a gift um and but that was you know that that's the logic of living in a slave society right and so um uh grant keeps him for a short period of time and then instead of selling the man um further on and grant certainly needed the money um he sets him free uh you know manumits him in the in the state of missouri for for you know uh zero dollars and um goes on to kind of you know, be the unsheathed sword of this liberating army that will become, you know, the army of emancipation. And, and he recognizes pretty early on in the war, not an ideologue, right? He's not a, an anti-slavery person to start with, but he recognizes, you know, fairly early on in the war that, that uh, he's going to have to, that we as a society, we as the, the union, are going to have to, you know, take the gloves off and uh and make war on the south's like peculiar institution um and uh and he recognizes early on that means basically you know that means having to think through what does what kind of place is uh you know are african americans going to occupy in a you know post-emancipation america we need to kind of picture a labor uh system that includes black people. We need to picture, uh, you know, how's, how are these? And, and Grant, you know, pretty quickly came to the conclusion, okay, yeah, got to arm uh, black people, got to, uh, you know, reconcile yourself to uh, the idea of African-American citizenship. Uh, as president, he later goes on to, uh, you know, uh, fight the KKK. So in other words, this we, we can see this trajectory of this, like, kind of complicated and, and certainly you know, by no means, uh, you know, he, he, he's not going to pass the purity test, right, of having right. never been a racist or whatever. Um, but Grant is an incredibly important person in, like, catalyzing, you know, the emancipatory movement in which, you know, Lincoln and Stanton and, you know, so many other figures who, who similarly are not, like, you know, abolitionist uh, uh true believers prior to the civil war end up being and i feel like if we can make if we can make peace with kind of like you know that a, a sense of that history as something that has moved right as something that is moving and can move again right that grounds us in a kind of common sense of who we are and where we potentially might keep going to you know um so. yeah yeah it, it's yeah, I have, I have a lot of questions about uh, about this, but I'd like to zoom in on, on the whole purity thing. Yes. Because it seems like whether we identify with right or left today, mm. mm -hmm. there is a there is an obsession uh, with purity. Right. And it, it, it takes different forms, but I, I just like to... Normally when we think of, you know, the, the, the snowflake insult, this is something that the right can direct at the left. Mm. Uh, and there's some justification, like, uh, oh, wait, because, you know, because people in the past don't measure up to our ideals, that makes them kind of absolutely without any kind of merit or virtue at all, and, mm -hmm. and therefore... And it's like, but you can equally well uh, direct the insult snowflake from left to right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, 
you know, oh, you poor babies, uh, you, <laughs> you sensitive snowflakes, you can't handle a little bit of divisive concepts, you can't, ha- mm-hmm. you can't handle sure. a little bit of uh, airing out the dirty linen in the closet, maybe even the mm-hmm. skeletons in the closet. Mm-hmm. Like, do we, is our judgment in the past so perfect that it may never be questioned? Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's, this, there's this weird thing where each side is accusing each other of, the, of being the snowflake, of being the sensitive right, right. one, of being the too fragile one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there, there's, all too much, there's all too much justification that you can't... But could you speak to the counter-arguments? Like, what could we do actually to become less fragile? Uh, you know, as, as individuals and as a collective. Uh, I'd have to give that a little thought. Uh, one, one point I wanted to add, um, kind of before addressing that, though, is like, you know, so from the point of view of the right-wing critique, right? I mean, like, you know, the, it's also a fact that this is the country this is the country where Ulysses S Grant went from being you know a a white person comfortable in the slave south uh to being you know one of the leading emancipators and this is also a country of Frederick Douglass right this is also a country like i mean there's a whole other side of this as well that will make you know that if we if we really take our history seriously uh the right is going to be at least as uncomfortable as uh, as the left will be, I mean, I think you know to pivot to your point about about uh, you know how do you how do you combat the fragility? I mean, I think you need to have a little bit of grace in kind of understanding the just the the frail yeah. you know the 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 troubles that people have had in the past, right? With this never we never came from a perfect society i mean we have this idea in america that we're supposed to be this city on a hill right that we that we're a new society that we're building something that's going to be a model right for the rest of the world and this is a very this fits very well with our sort of you know puritanical uh cultural legacy right and I think it's nuts. I mean, this has never been what we are. We never started from scratch. Um, the people who thought that they were, you know, building this this ideal society as a, you know, as a refuge for for uh, Puritan extremists from, you know, the the far right of the Church of England, as it then was, and who had broken with the Church of England because it wasn't nearly uh, extremely, uh, you know, extreme Protestant enough. Um, like they were not starting from zero. They had all of these, all of this cultural baggage that they were coming with. They had their own racial ideas. They, you know, they, uh, there was this genocidal, uh, encounter with, uh, the, the Pequots and other, other, you know, people whose lands they had basically appropriated. Like, I mean, <laughs> we, we need to, we need to get off of this idea that we are ever were as a nation going to be something perfect and ideal, Right. If we can, you know, if we can dismiss that preconception, that Puritan preconception, then I think that opens up a little space, right, where we can say, okay, flawed as we are and always have been as a nation, you know, there are some things that have pointed in the direction of good. There are some things that we've done that really are worth, you know, remembering with pride and plenty of other things that we you know need fixing <laughs> like i mean no no two ways about it right yeah. like it's a I, and i think if we can if we can accept this about 
the past as we look back and kind of assess um, where we've come from down the centuries, then I think, you know, that kind of makes, that opens up a bit of space for us to extend a similar kind of grace and forbearance to each other as Americans in the present day and looking forward, right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I like that kind of grace and the, the acknowledgement of fundamental flaws. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's kind of easier said than done, though. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm completely on board, sure. but I'm, I, I'm thinking of examples of how this plays out in practice. Okay. Uh, so, um, one, of the, one, of, one, of, one of the people, I think, who, who right at the beginning was on board with exactly what you're saying uh, was John Adams. Uh, right. <laughs> and we're, we're laughing because we've crossed swords many a time over John Adams. <laughs> yes, indeed. And so Adam says this. I, we can definitely circle back. I don't want to. I don't want to hijack this into, into, into uh, one of our old debates. But so Adams says this when he's grappling with the uh, with the Enlightenment heritage, mm-hmm. reading Rousseau and really critiquing the idea of human perfectibility, okay. right? Mm-hmm. That that yeah. uh, that Rousseau and others, uh, you know, so proposed. He said, and he's 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 looking at the country. He's looking at mm. this this city on the hill idea. That, mm-hmm. and he's he he's kind of a cynical bastard, you know. He's mm-hmm. kind of a and, and and he's rejecting that. He's saying, look. Um, Look, we as Americans are not a chosen people that uh-huh. I know of, he right. says. Right. If we are, he says, we deserve it as little as the Jews do. Uh, we must and we shall go the way of the earth. That, uh, uh-huh. This is what he writes. And so it's, 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 a, um, you know, it's tempting to, to take that and say, oh, well, this guy was completely just out of step with the times. He was out of step with the founding generation. He was just an old curmudgeon. I think there's something that there, there's something that we can ground ourselves in there. He mm. was not saying uh, we can't get better. He he he, he was I, th- I think very aligned with, with with how you so well put it. How for all our flaws, mm. of course there is something to strive for. Mm-hmm. For all our flaws, yes, there is, there is so much that we can improve, mm-hmm. moral, economic, political, and in any other way. It's just that. We need to leave aside that dream of perfectibility, which may be just a childish dream. I actually wouldn't even go that far, though. I mean, I think I think you know we can. The idea of perfectibility has been with us for a really long time, and I think we've drawn a lot of benefits from it down the centuries, right? I mean, like, so um, Abraham Lincoln, for instance was was constantly quoting Thomas Jefferson in his political speeches and uh, and writings uh, and and specifically holding up the marker that Jefferson had laid down kind of as this apostle of enlightenment uh, thought of enlightenment perfectibility uh, in the Declaration of Independence right which became a a leitmotif was the cornerstone of Lincoln's idea of kind of the basic fair shake that he wanted all Americans to be able to have, right? This life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness dream that was extended to everybody and that all people were created equal. That was never, uh, you know, intended by 
Lincoln would say, that was never intended by Jefferson as a descriptive uh, fact. It was intended as a mark to strive for, right? As, a, as something to shoot for collectively as a society so that we, in each generation we get closer and closer to realizing this ideal. And that was intended as a, as a you know, it was spoken in universalist terms because it was intended to endure, right? It was intended to be a mark that we would continue uh, to measure ourselves against and, and to strive for. Even, however, you know, and, and the messenger was absolutely <laughs> deeply flawed, uh, no two ways about it. But the message, I think, has really resonated, not just with Lincoln, but also with Martin Luther King Jr. and Barack Obama. And, you know, so many progressives down the years have, have drawn inspiration from this concept, which does bring people together. Like, this is a unifying message for Americans writ large and indeed beyond. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of a contradiction here. Like, on the one, because Jefferson was... You know, as you say, that, that's a, that I think that's a very fair summary of his thought. How do you connect that or distinguish that from what you were saying earlier about we as Americans need to give up the 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 idea that we were ever perfect? That we, like, is it precisely in the aspirational versus the descriptive? That yes, you, that, okay. I, I think so. I think okay. so. And I and I think I think this is the you know this is the real weakness of you know the so-called 1776 project or whatever like you know the 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 kind of the right-wing rewriting of history as you know kind of looking back on american history and george washington in particular and the you know the the founding generation as having you know just really seeing them through rose-colored glasses right if they weren't perfect then certainly the pilgrims were perfect if the pilgrims weren't perfect you know then certainly name your name your hero right robert e lee must have been perfect you know like everybody's got their their vision america in the 1950s was perfect uh and you know projecting this this false notion of past perfection uh on our conception of of something that we've lost right something that we've kind of degenerated from is i think a really fundamental error that the right makes in its, you know, rewriting of history that they're attempting to do now. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I, I've assigned the 1776 project alongside the 1619, so the 1776 commission report, yeah. commissioned by the Trump presidency, mm-hmm. alongside the 1619 project, mm-hmm. and ask, you know, especially the intro, right, by Nicole uh, uh, Jones. Hannah Jones. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Asked my students to read those things together and 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 and, and discuss. And mm. We've had some really really interesting discussions about it. In some ways, the 1776 project it does acknowledge flaws at the beginning and at the in the middle mm. and and today. But they they do something strange, and you're not wrong about the rewriting history aspect. Mm. Um, that. The narrative is, uh, yes, of course there have been problems, mm-hmm. but the progress has been uh, has been firm and steady. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a lot that's swept under the rug as a result of that. But one of the interesting things is the parallels. Of course, 
two views of American history could not be more different on mm. one level. The 1619 Project right. uh, saying, look, the ideals of our founders were false when they were written. Mm -hmm. uh, it took the struggles of black Americans to make those ideals a reality. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something to that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's, there, there, there's a lot to critique. Okay, shifting to the 1776 project, you know, we've, we've, we've said the same thing. There, there, there might be something to it, but there's a lot to critique. The thing that strikes me as, the, as, as weirdest, mm -hmm. uh, putting those two things together, is their similarities. Right. Because the place where they both end up, mm -hmm. so of course, in the narrative of the 1619 project, mm -hmm. the narrative is gonna run through the Civil Rights Act. And it was precisely in the 1960s according to this narrative, mm -hmm. that the United States truly became a democracy, right? right. Because now uh, the Civil Rights Act has, in practice, not just in theory, opened up voting to black Americans as well as white Americans. Right. Uh, and so part of that narrative, of course, is, of course, the Civil Rights Act is front and center there. Mm. There's something very interesting that happens with the, uh, the 1776 report. They, too, claim Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. They, too, claim, yes, this was part of the triumphal march forward. Mm -hmm. Yes, there were a lot of problems in the past. And yes, Martin Luther King was the guy who, right. uh, you know, he's the face on the Civil Rights Act that, that, that made us what we are today. Mm -hmm. And today, it is, in general, according to this narrative, mm -hmm. the conservative Americans who are the continuators of that tradition, right? Whereas the, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter activists are, are too involved in identity politics to oh, see okay. their way clearly. Yeah. So you've got, on the one hand, in the 1619 Project, you've got the good guys mm -hmm. uh, who are on the left today, uh, broadly, so, bro broadly defined. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, on the right, of the 1776 project, you've got, of course, the conservatives who are on the are on the right side of history today. Mm -hmm. But the structure of the argument is the same. Even though you end up with a, extremely opposing views, they're agreeing on quite a lot too, right? Totally. I mean, because they're both fundamentally they're both locked in the same zero sum logic, which uh, I maintain is is basically where Heather McGee you know, is such a valuable voice and where Nicole Hannah-Jones goes so badly wrong, right? I mean, it's, it's the same. Uh, at some point, she, she basically says, you know, uh, no, white people shouldn't fly the American flag. This belongs to people like my dad who were veterans and, and you know, black veterans can claim ownership of this flag in a way that white Americans can't. I mean, this is, this is total red meat to, you know, and, and, and exactly kind of the same sort of message in reverse, right, that you hear from the right, that, you know, this is, that we, the, okay, so in every fundraising email that the Trump campaign sends out, they say, dear patriots, right, you know, we are the ones to whom the flag belongs. We are the ones who this country is really supposed to belong to, right? It's the same, you know, this, this, this kind of, you know, contested logic of, of who really owns the American legacy um, is, is basically, you know, it's two sides of the same, of the same coin. And one, one trap that uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones falls into 
is, you know, to really look at the most reactionary of American voices and to say, look, here is white America writ large, or here is, you know, the establishment writ large telling on itself. So she does not accept, for example, the um, version of American history as told by, uh, by Abraham Lincoln or by, you know, Washburn or Lovejoy or Stanton or, you know, any of the other kind of, you know, people who won the Civil War and hence vindicated the Union, right? Um, or let alone by Frederick Douglass, right? Uh, she wants to tell uh, the history of the founding generation as told by Jefferson Davis. Aha, Jefferson Davis has the right idea. Jefferson Davis is where white America tells on itself. And, you know, and no, that, that's what lost. Like, Jefferson Davis fought for a political idea. That political idea, he decided, the rebels decided, would be uh, submitted to the arbitration of the sword. That was their choice. They fired on Fort Sumter. This was absolutely the way they wanted to vindicate their principle, and they lost. That means that gives us victors, right? A little bit of we we should we should be able to get our ed, our our uh, story in edgewise at least a little bit, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and um, you know and it's it's interesting that you you know raise the point of, about Martin Luther King Jr. because I mean you know uh, he is. If, if anybody, you know, in American history, I, I would say he and, and Barack Obama, perhaps, were the people who most clearly expressed this idea of a, um, of a non-zero-sum uh, sense of Americanness, this expansive, inclusive vision, right, in which, um, yes, absolutely, uh, we're we're looking for social justice for the downtrodden, and that will benefit us all, right? I mean that uh, that mentality. What the right takes from Martin Luther King Jr. is just the idea of colorblindness, right? They they really misunderstand what he stood for, and take the you know few words "I have a dream," stick them on a lot of stuff, and you're not supposed to inquire what that dream meant. Uh, but if you do accidentally find out, then they'll spin that as just meaning, oh, that means colorblind admissions to universities or whatever, and that means opposition to affirmative action, which is not at all how uh, Martin Luther King Jr. understood his, <laughs> his attitude about university admissions, right? right. To name one point. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a socialist. I mean, he was, a, he was absolutely for a transformation of the American economic uh, system in order for society as a whole to be able to benefit collectively um, and for poor people to be uplifted in a way that, you know, this is, you know, this is a message that, that uh, Americans have too often kind of erased from our history, right? We have, we have a glorious legacy of, of socialist thinkers like Helen Keller and uh, Albert Einstein to add to the pantheon and you know I mean like <laughs> this is it's never it's never been just right the the free market uh, voices who've who've been you know the most important in American society and uh, you know we we, uh, we need to accept that as well if we're gonna really you know take our history seriously yeah I want to go back to what you said about getting the narrative of the victors in edgewise. It, right? At the I face mean, of it, it seems so strange. You yeah, know, yeah. That, yes, the North won. Right. Uh, you know, 
I was well, I the, was raised the union in a, one. As uh, I, I should I should correct myself. I probably said the same thing. Well, I maybe you didn't. Yeah, I I, I stand corrected. The union one. Yeah. So I was raised in a, in, a, in a very progressive area, right mm-hmm. in the San Francisco Bay Area. But mm-hmm. friends who who were raised in the South. Uh, one of my friends was raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and she, she she's about five years older than me. But she remembers high school history textbooks, mm-hmm. uh, just saying flat out that the, you know, it was the lost cause narrative. The mm-hmm. South yeah. won the war, right, right. really. And there are historical precedents for this kind of thing, where you know, you, I don't know, you you win the battle and you lose the war, or you win the war but you lose the peace. Uh huh. You know, right. I could could you speak to that a little bit more? The... Oh, it, like it's it's really awkward, you know, because we we were in we were in trouble with what we were trying to do politically. The easy thing would have been to let uh you know William Lloyd Gar- uh, Garrison get his way and just say you know adios to the slave south and uh you know a pox upon you and and we'll continue to build the the. Simon Pure, City on a Hill Society. So get his way in the sense of secede ourselves from the South. Yeah, yes. yeah. And, yes. and in fact, after secession, you know, I mean, so, so Garrison had on his masthead no union with slaveholders, right? That was, uh, that, that was on the pages of the Liberator from the jump. Um, after secession, he continued on this line until the war started, uh, still saying, nope, let him go, let him go. We don't want him anyway. Uh, we need a union that has no uh, no slaves, nothing to do with the slave system, right? And which, by the way, fits very nicely with with a sort of segregationist "we want no black people either" mentality, and and that yeah. that streak often ran through some some of the abolitionist narratives as well. But um, anyway, so uh, you know, you see, that would have been the easy thing to do, uh, you know, just just negotiate. A separation. What we were trying to do, though, in uh, the Civil War was to reunite the country under a common citizenship uh, of a, you know, of a republic in which everybody would vote. And that meant uh, Southern white people would vote. Uh, and certainly at the beginning of the war, um, you know, it really was not in the cards politically, it wasn't. It wasn't forecast immediately that this would lead to Southern Black people voting. So the the reconciliationist imperative kind of started early on, and um, and and for a while, arguably uh, sidetracked Lincoln's political project in these you know attempts to kind of uh, cajole the border states into these uh, programs of gradual emancipation. And, um, you know, he certainly forbore with uh, McClellan and the, you know, the war Democrats uh, who wanted nothing to do with emancipation uh, for far too long. He wanted a coalition, in other words, that would be a union coalition uh, in which, like, racist white people, North and South, could still feel like they belonged, right? This was (laughs) because he was trying to hold the country together. I mean, this is the point. And, uh, you know, so, so what could we do as a union to kind of rebuild the country, right, in a way that did not give a vote and a voice and, a, you know, at least on the state level, a deciding role in post-war reconstruction to the very people who started the war 
and plunged you know the country into this into this agony of uh you know of, of facing our <laughs> facing our demons as viscerally as we had to right i mean like um yeah. you you couldn't one one possibility um which should have been taken seriously and wasn't um was to just uh disenfranchise former rebels let it go for a generation right the children of the rebels might agree or disagree with what their fathers had done but i mean you know there's no reason that if you fight against your country if you fight against the united states you should be able to vote in a united states election i mean i think that's a pretty that should be a kind of uncontroversial standpoint right and if you're a traitor to your country, um, if you if you swore to you know uphold and and defend the constitution and so on and so forth, and then you perjure yourself, right? Then you take up arms against the United States. Um, I, I think it's a kind of a no-brainer that you shouldn't be able to hold office again uh, under the United States. Um, you know, uh, and uh, unfortunately, with the assassination of uh, Lincoln, you know, we got Johnson in as president and. This led to a far more conciliatory uh, standpoint than uh, certainly than the United States Congress was willing to go with, and probably much more so than Lincoln would have gone with. Although that's you know, a counterfactual, so who knows? But um, you know, so the experiment could have been attempted, but wasn't. That um, you know, the South, the voting population, the the, the sort of constituency of of american democracy south of mason and dixon's line might be wartime unionists people who moved south from the north right and uh african americans um in other words the the trio of uh scallywags carpetbaggers right so called right and um and uh, African-Americans who were demonized for, you know, the great mass of American. I, I can remember, uh, you know, I mean, this this history continues like, you know, I'm not that old. And my textbooks um, had these, you know, broadsides against scallywags and carpetbaggers as being, you know, the worst people. They portrayed uh, the uh, Reconstruction governments in which... Uh, Black people served in elected office as being irredeemably corrupt and, and awful and terrible. And this is, you know, here in suburban Chicagoland. I mean, this is not like the Deep South. This is, right. uh, you know, the, and, and the, the same theme runs through so much of the way uh, this period is remembered in uh, National Park Service uh, panels, if you go to, to the... Uh, battlefields, um, you know, um, guidebooks, um, popular histories, right? I mean, it, it shoots through the whole thing. We have this idea of, you know, the um, the American Civil War as uh, tragic, right? It's a tragedy that we won. Every battle that the Union won, uh, we got to mention, like, what a tragedy this is and what the death toll was and isn't it terrible that we're that brothers are fighting against brothers and, and, you know, dying for nothing, right? And uh, whereas every battle that the South wins, the narrative is the opposite. It's, it's oh, isn't this a glorious tour de force by, look at Stonewall Jackson being absolutely brilliant. Look at Robert E. Lee being 
irresistible and, and unconquerable. Look at Nathan Bedford Forrest, future founder of the KKK, you know, being being brilliant and indomitable in his cowardly, loathsome behind enemy lines raids. I mean, like this this is completely not the hero <laughs> of really any battle that I'm aware of. Um, and if I can just uh, put a kind of quickly uh, add a little anecdote on this subject, I have a, uh, a Civil War, um, uh, it's a really good resource. It's like a Civil War uh, guidebook for uh, people who want to go on a road trip and, and visit Civil War sites. And, they, you know, he goes through, the author goes, is this yours or is this somebody else's? No, I, w- okay. I wish I had written anything I, this I good. wouldn't put it past you to write an excellent <laughs> one and just distribute it to your friends. You've done it with other things. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, this is, this is an actual published work by a, by a real author who, uh, uh, whose name escapes me. But um, uh, anyway, you know, there's, there's some point where he's talking about the Battle of Fort Pillow, right? And, uh, and he's all like, oh, this is... I, I come now to this really trouble, morally troubling incident here where, you know, the Fort Pillow Massacre, one of the most uh, notorious, uh, you know, blatant human rights abuses in the whole war, you know, there were plenty of them, but this is, this is probably the most notorious one, um, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest, this man whom I otherwise admire so prodigiously, uh, suddenly, you know, uh, is, is, seemingly culpable for a massacre of uh, African-American prisoners. Uh, and doesn't this seem troubling? It's like, all right, Nathan Best- Bedford Forrest, this is who he is, right? Before the war, he is a slave trader. That's his job. He chose the profession of slave trader, the most like morally disgraceful uh, job in even in a slave society, right? Lincoln has a delightful little uh, little portrait of this where he's like, you'll let your children, you the southern slaveholders, you'll let your children play with the little Negroes, but you will not let them go anywhere near the slave traders' kids. Um, you know, <laughs> he, wow. was, he was a snake before the war. Uh, during the war, he routinely allowed his soldiers to massacre American soldiers U.S. soldiers captured in battle on the basis of the color of their skin. Uh, and after the war, he continued doing the same brutish and cruel and terrible things as the you know leader of the Ku Klux Klan. So black soldiers that he and his men caught made prisoner, they would, they would execute them. Right, yeah. Okay. Or they would murder them rather than accepting their surrender. Okay. Um, you know. Okay. And this this was routine. And he kept, you know, I mean, the lynching was the exact continuation of the same thing. So in other words, there's no, like, kind of moral uh, uh, hand-wringing that you need to do in kind of reconciling this glorious image that you have of Nathan Bedford Forrest with, uh, you know, the the inglorious victor of the Battle of Fort Pillow here. I mean, just adjust your priors... <laughs> And don't hero-worship Nathan Bedford Forrest. Uh, there, there's no contradiction that you need to resolve here. Right, he was right. an awful, awful person. The lowest of the low, morally speaking, for his entire adult life. That's who he was. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> 
but mainstream you know this is this is for a mass audience he's not this this author is not you know addressing himself to white supremacists right he's not you know he right. doesn't see this as a neo-confederate uh, exercise he just thinks he's calling balls and strikes yeah it reminds me a lot of uh, you know in the the famous Civil War documentary by Ken Burns mm-hmm. right the talking uh, the main talking head there are a few others but the main one is Shelby Foote yeah remember that yep uh, and I, who in, similarly has not a bad word to say about Nathan Bedford Forrest oh far from it he he says at one point he he, he makes clear his his uh, his priorities, and it's and it's a brilliant, it, it, it's it's a very entertaining anecdote, but it goes mm-hmm. straight to what you're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Shelby, in his in his nice Southern drawl, mm-hmm. is uh, telling the story of he managed at some point years before the documentary was made. So this mm-hmm. is probably in the 1970s, maybe in the 1980s. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. He manages to track down the granddaughter, I think, of right. Nathan Bedford Forrest, mm-hmm. Forrest and you know, he, he, he calls on the phone and this lady with impeccable Southern manners and an, an impeccable Southern accent, you know, uh, she answers the phone and uh, he gets to talking with her and he tells her, he says, I think, I, Shelby, mm-hmm. think that the Civil War produced two great geniuses, your grandfather mm-hmm. and Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And he says there was silence on the other end of the phone. Mm-hmm. And finally, the, the, the granddaughter says, and in her impeccably polite way. <laughs> well, my my family never did care much for Mr. Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And th- this is important. This is going straight to your point about, uh, about you, know, um, uh, you know, winning the war, but somehow not winning the peace mm-hmm. or not winning the propaganda right. campaign or, or to put it nice, not, nicer, not winning the education competition, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah, uh, not winning the narrative, right? The discourse of of what had happened, yeah, right. It, it, one more thing, and then I, I I'd love to hear if you could if you could pull all of these things together. I I, I debate people uh, a lot who say something like this, um, and they're generally more on the right, mm. um, and they're generally more in sympathy with the South, but of mm-hmm. course they claim not to be racist. Oh, of and course. um. And I'm not saying that to say, oh, that's wrong. I'm just saying it, it, it's a lot more complicated than, mm. than just who's pure and who's not. There's, sure. Yeah. But, but they, they will say something like this. You know, uh, it was Lincoln's fault. It, it, the war was Lincoln's fault. It was completely and utterly uh, an unnecessary war. Mm-hmm. This would be the position of someone like Ron Paul, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a libertarian, but definitely leaning more into the... In, uh, in, in, um, um, Leaning more right, mm-hmm. who's going to say, "Look, th- this is just a this is this is a this is a nonsense war." Lincoln mm-hmm. could have freed all the slaves without ever uh, without ever firing a shot. Uh-huh. Um, how do we, you know, battle that narrative uh, in a productive way? I mean, um, it's a how do we win the hearts and minds war? You know, not just not just trying to convince recalcitrants uh-huh. uh, who who are still convinced of the lost cause narrative, right. but sensible conservatives, you know, and people people on the left who otherwise wouldn't really know or or wouldn't or think to care, right? Would, wouldn't understand that they had a dog in this fight, yeah, because Lincoln was a racist, Ex- and because exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, I, I mean, I think, okay, I'll, I'll conclude with the, with the kind of tactics of how to do it thing. But I think, you know, one, one key thing to start from is, you know, to be aware of what really happened, right? I mean, there's so much unrebuked, un kind of, you know, unrefuted, errant nonsense told about the so-called war between the states or whatever. Like, states did not make war on each other, right? (laughs) This is not what happened. (laughs) Um, States, one section of states uh, put together a would-be pretended provisional government uh, and the entire point of the war was testing whether that could validly be allowed to pass. It didn't, right? That didn't pass. Um, and so no one who's, who calls Jefferson Davis the president of the Confederate States of America should be allowed to get away with it, because he wasn't. He pretended to be, but this was a bogus government. That's the whole, that's the whole outcome of the war. To talk about these two side by side, I went to I went to Springfield, right, the uh, Springfield, Illinois, where uh, the the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library uh, is there. In the Presidential Library Museum, um, I saw side by side. They've taken this down. They've remodeled this section now, but it wasn't many years ago. Side by side, big you know full length picture of Abraham Lincoln right next to him. Big full length picture of Jefferson Davis. Uh, go through uh, similarities, both born in Kentucky, both did this, both did that, uh, you know, 100% treating them as though they were equal sovereigns of countries in the world that had had a right to exist, whose cabinets were valid, etc., etc., right? Yeah. And this is absolutely not the case. The original grounds that, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln took to Congress, right, on, on July 4th, 1861, uh, in, his, in his, you know, address being like, okay, uh, Congress of the American, Congress of the United States, uh, you know, American people, uh, through your representatives, I call on you to uh, approve the various war measures that I've taken up to this point. And the reason why, the reason why I think the war has been worth fighting up till now is that there can be no appeal from the ballot to the bullet. This is a really, you know, this is a fairly simple idea. Like this is a, I, I mean, I think anyone who like loses an election, you know, if, if you win an election and your opponent's feeling sore about it, like you can go over and shake their hand, right? If they break your fingers, I think that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty in-your-face clear example of what's going on here, right? The the pro-slavery uh, faction, the most extreme faction, the Breckenridge faction, uh, had run the country. Uh, you know, that was that was the the outgoing Buchanan administ- administration. Breckenridge was the vice president, and that um, Floyd was a, you know, he he was. Um, an important figure in this in this period is the Secretary of War, right? Uh, in the Buchanan administration, he ensured that uh, the United States military materiel, weapons, everything, uh, were sent south to arsenals where the rebels, uh, who he anticipated would rebel, uh, they'd be there for them to get, right? Um, and uh, ensured, in other words, that there would be this this 
you know, violent opposition after the fact to the outcome of the 1860 election, right? Um, no one talks about Floyd's cabinet conspiracy. No one talks about, uh, you know, the original justification. Apart from emancipation, this is a perfectly good reason to go to war, right? If you believe in a republican form of government, if you believe in what we'd call today democracy, the idea that, you know, it's legit for an aggrieved losing party to appeal to violence to overturn the results of the election, that cannot be allowed, right? Uh, and that has obviously really immediate <laughs> implications for us living in America today, right? Absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, I think, you know, we need to make the case first, you know, and and do so with without a lot of hand-wringing and without a lot... This was a glorious cause, right? Free government in the world is a glorious cause. The union and liberty, now and forever, one and indivisible, is a glorious cause. The li emancipation, the end of slavery, the eventual, uh, you know, uh, civil rights... Uh, birthright citizenship to all Americans, regardless of skin color. That means explicitly those born into servitude or uh, 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 slavery. Um, this is a glorious cause. We should have fought it. You know, we shouldn't be apologizing for it. We shouldn't be apologizing for the fact that we won. We won as a country. This is great. This is good. <laughs> so how does that message get across? I don't know. Uh, Put that in a tweet or something. Uh, make a TikTok about it. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. Let's shift now to 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 pressing the point home to uh, folks on the left who either wouldn't be aware of the history or mm, who would be sure. pretty explicitly anti-Lincoln. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know. Is it just uh, is is it is it useful to just to just line up Ron Paul on one side and uh, Howard Zinn on the other and <laughs> and like make them equivalent and try to appeal to people's reason? Is it I um, I guess I'm I'm worried because okay perhaps the mom and apple pie narrative uh, mm -hmm. was not quite critical enough. Sure. And then we come to, uh, you know, a much more critical narrative that kind of tips over into a, not just an unfair criticism, right. but a really unjustified criticism, a, a mm -hmm. criticism that lacks the historical basis that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, how do we get there in the schools? I mean, it, where mm -hmm. I'm from in California, uh -huh. Zinn's book, A People's History of the United States, this is... This is a textbook in right. many high school and university U.S. history courses. Yeah. Um, so we go I, from a mom and apple pie to Howard Zinn, and like, I mean, you know, if you read if you read a people's history of the United States, it's really clear that Zinn does not intend this at all as a standalone history. It's meant as a corrective, right? It's meant right. as an alternative. Uh, viewpoint to what was in his day the dominant narrative, right? Yeah. And so you were kind of supposed to read, you know, like the the uh, state of Texas approved history book, like I did in in uh, Illinois, uh, and then you know side by side or as an enrichment activity or something, also read a people's history to get a different perspective, right? I mean, yeah. Um, I I think reading Zinn 
solo is going to just you know scramble people's brains um <laughs> like if that's your only perspective on on u.s history um because of as i say it, with it's, all due respect to matt damon and the uh are you aware of this film? no uh-uh. it, the film it came out in the 90s goodwill hunting oh okay uh, okay yeah. in in that uh you know will matt damon tells his therapist hey this is the only textbook this is the only book on u.s history that you should that you should read that'll blow your socks off he says <laughs> uh, so yeah I, I think it's I think it's a very fair point you're making mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean look I, I think we need to not be we not we need to not be afraid of our history as as, as the left I'm speaking as a you know as a leftist myself like I think we need to be, not be afraid of our history and you know uh, that we need to start with from a place where um, as I said earlier, you know, the city on the hill has been knocked to the ground, right? We can't have that. We can't have that sort of insistence on purity uh, always and everywhere. And we can, you know, hold up those who played their part in the great struggles of our past, right? And those struggles continue to, into the present, obviously, as well. So, I mean, you know, I think, I think you know... It's, AOC, for example, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, at, at some point described herself as a, um, you know, her and, and the squad and her, her kind of uh, maybe larger coterie of like Justice Democrats and others um, are, for our day, what the radical Republicans were in like, you know, critiquing and holding to account uh, you know the powers that be, and making sure that they stay focused on the ultimate aim of uh, you know of social justice, and you know in her case uh, the Green New Deal, for example, and other other you know positive uh, goals. So um, she isn't one hundred percent wrong about that. Actually, I mean I think she's you know uh, she's she has a lot of advantages over the uh, radical Republicans of yesteryear, right? She was, she's a much more nuanced and thoughtful communicator. Um, she has a much more constructive attitude, I believe, towards uh, the executive uh, under Joe Biden uh, at the present that, than, um, you know, than most of the radicals did uh, vis-a-vis uh, Lincoln, with some honorable exceptions like like Lovejoy and uh, maybe Zachariah Chandler and some others, but um, you know, so I think there is you know there is some validity to this uh, point of view that there needs to be both the kind of main current right as represented by the powers that be in Washington, and there needs to be the kind of activist critiquey. <laughs> you know, uh, let's hold let's hold our leaders' feet to the fire, uh, uh, type of mentality. I think that's right. I mean, I I don't think, but they need to they need to understand that they're both you know doing the same thing, right? I mean that that's like if this works, you know, the one strengthens the other, right? The one will lead the other forward. Lincoln recognized that in his day, like as as much as the radical Republicans were driving him bonkers with their personal attacks on himself and their, you know, just unfair kind of, uh, you know, attributions of, of, of the meanest of motives to his administration and 
imbecility was one of their favorite words in describing uh, the Lincoln administration. Uh, you know, he was glad that they were staking out that position, right? He was glad that they were uh, making, you know, making it clear that there was this mark to shoot for, for, uh, for society as a whole. And he, as the sort of central leadership, wanted to guide society in that direction. He wasn't in a huge hurry. And, and I think that's, you know, that might actually be a fair critique of him, you know, kind of 1862 was sort of a lost year in some ways, like things could have progressed a lot faster um, uh, in the direction that, you know, the radicals accepted almost the day after Fort Sumter that they would have to go, right? Mm. So um, I don't know if that really answers your question exactly, but... <laughs> no, it does. I, we, 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 in other words, we need to see we need to see ourselves in in you know the history the historical struggles of the past too, right? Like, I mean, we had a place there if we're if we're in the kind of AOC camp, right? Uh, Frederick Douglass was there, like you know, read Frederick Douglass's writings on the war. Like he expressed all kinds of impatience with Lincoln and support for the cause and, you know, uh, uh, ultimately a, a, a strong identification with, you know, the, the principles of the Union, Liberty, and, and the GOP as it then was, right? Yeah, yeah. So how would we explicitly address the, uh, you know, the most vehement critiques of Lincoln mm. today? Uh, for example, uh, Lerone Bennett Jr. has written a 650-page book mm -hmm. uh, detailing how Lincoln was first and always a white supremacist. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there were there are all of there are a lot of charges that uh, that that we would do well to take seriously, right? Especially Lincoln's uh, uh, early support for colonization. Uh, early, middle, Kirby. and late. <laughs> he yeah, stuck absolutely. with it up until he stuck with it way long, way longer than he needed to. Um, yeah, that made sense. Yeah. The curbing of the civil civil liberties during the war. Um, you know, there, I'm not so convinced that that's a fair critique. But but anyway, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I I'd love to hear. I'd yeah, I'd love to hear your your weighing of these critiques and mm -hmm. how you would respond directly to them. Because this these are these are the 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 things brought up. Uh, against Lincoln again yeah. and again by mm. the Zen, Lerone Bennett. Camp. Right, right. Um, you know, I, I haven't actually read that book. I, I have the idea of the, you know, broad tenor of this type of critique, uh, uh, which, you know, correct me if I'm, if I'm going off base here, but I mean, it seems, it seems so, um, it seems like such a pat, you know, made in the Kremlin uh, type of uh, <laughs> type of critique, right? You're it's not like, wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> like, you know, hashtag Lincoln was a racist, right? We, you can't you can't say anything about Abraham Lincoln without getting a, a reply. Hashtag Lincoln was a racist, um, and you know, yeah. Look, um, it, he liked minstrel shows. He thought they were funny. Um, you know, Lincoln was a great storyteller, told lots of stories. I think probably uh, I haven't done a really thorough um, uh, inventory of them, though that would be really fun to do. Um, <laughs> I think the I think the butt of most of his jokes, or, or at least the sort of uh, from the mouth of babes character uh, that he mostly 
brings forward is like an Irish laborer. Uh, and his second uh, favorite is uh, is a black person, often a slave. And, um, you know, and these are kind of stock characters in his stories. And um, it, it makes for really uncomfortable reading uh, nowadays at, at times because we're starting from the perspective, right, that that black people ought, well, I, I shouldn't say that, we ought to be starting from the perspective that black people ought to be citizens uh, of the United States of America on the same basis as people of any other racial background, right? And, um, you know, it's it's really hard, uh, and, and maybe we shouldn't even try, <laughs> frankly, uh, to put ourselves in the perspective of a citizen of a republic in which African-American citizenship was exceptional and, uh, and, and, you know, and, there, and, and the kind of conception of, that people had about, about what black people, whether black people belonged in the United States um, uh, or not was, was very circumscribed. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he, says a lot of things especially in his in his earlier years that that just really um you know great on our sensibilities but as i say he's addressing himself to an illinois electorate composed entirely of white voters right who he knows are harboring a lot of racist ideas right and you know the so for example, this this idea that uh, Lincoln was a segregationist, right? That he wanted the races to be separate. You really don't have to look that hard to find evidence of this concept uh, in Lincoln's writings. At the same time, I mean, I think you know Lincoln's Lincoln's justifications, if you call them that, for having this position speak volumes because you know Abraham Lincoln makes never makes a claim that he belongs to a superior race inherently right he absolutely disavows this idea that that there's anything superior about the anglo-saxon uh blood or anglo-saxon civilization you never hear a syllable of that in uh any of lincoln's writings that i've ever come across which is really surprising when you consider how commonplace those assertions were in the very milieu that he's operating in um, you hear the, the rationale that white people are going to be uncomfortable sharing a common citizenship with black people, and therefore it's kinder to both races for them both to get a fair shot in life, even if that means a relocation of some large number of African Americans to like Cherokee and what's now, um, and what's now Panama, um, you know. And, I mean, it's not that different from, like, the Marcus Garvey kind of critique of American Very race true. relations, right? That, yeah. you know, this is, uh, you know, it, it's hard to look back at American history and say that white people have been totally comfortable with the idea of African-American citizenship on the same basis as white people, which is a horrifying thing to have to say that, you know, yeah, 150 years have passed, and we're still grappling with the exact problem that Lincoln said we would be grappling with. Um, you know, um, so Lincoln was a segregationist. Well, uh, Lincoln was, uh, you know, uh, 
Lincoln was a racist. He, you know, had, had all these kind of caricatures of, of black people. I will say one thing because, um, you know, Hannah, um, Hannah Jones, Nicole Hannah Jones brings this up as well. Um, one kind of cornerstone text that people always cite uh, in bringing down, you know, Lincoln, you know, the, the Lincoln was a racist uh, uh, idea um, was that, uh, you know, this address that he makes, I forget the date, um, he's talking to Frederick Douglass and a few other, um, you know, leaders of uh, the African-American community in Washington, D.C., and he's encouraging them to kind of go back to their community and uh, promote the idea of emigration, right, of, of voluntary colonization of Cherokee or some other place where, you know, uh, where, where Lincoln is going to negotiate, you know, this will be a safe haven for you guys, right? And um, this text is incredibly cringe-inducing. Um, and it is, you know, it, it's really, you know, it, it, it's the kind of thing that, that, you know, it's the only text of Abraham Lincoln that Nicole Hannah-Jones quotes directly in the 1619 project. Um, and the words are not Lincoln's. Uh, the words are not anything that Lincoln put to paper. The words are not anything that Lincoln caused to be published. And it's the words that people cringe at when you read them today. Um, the concepts are, are in some cases, you know, classic Lincoln and in some cases, uh, you know, classic Lincoln head scratchers, <laughs> you know, the basic idea of colonization is, is uh, you know, kind of batty. Uh, but I mean, you know, the the what what really gets people's hackles raised are you know the the uh, truly the truly unartful and and kind of cruel expressions uh, that Lincoln is paraphrased uh, as making in the newspaper report by an attendee who who you know was kind of summarizing the uh, the whole affair after the fact and was annoyed at it um, if i'm if i'm not mistaken so that so that's Nicole Hannah Jones quoting a newspaper account yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. that records someone paraphrasing what right. Lincoln said yeah after okay. the fact who okay. who felt who felt you know irritated yeah uh, uh, understandably <laughs> i'm not saying it's it's you know the but you know whoever wrote this down i, I uh, would have to revisit you right, know the right. exact person uh, you know was not producing the co you know the the most coherent and cogent text as as Lincoln would have prepared it. Right now, there is a point in in Lincoln's published uh, you know actual published oeuvre um, where he seems to blame uh, African Americans for the fact of the war. I believe it's in the second inaugural, for heaven's sakes. I mean, like it's it's you know uh, because of this element amongst us, uh, you know. Uh, the war came kind of kind of acting as though African Americans had had colluded in the existence of slavery as an institution. That's, That's funny. Really... I've, I've never interpreted it that way. In the oh, second really? inaugural, okay, uh, I've always read it as an acknowledgement that slavery was the fundamental cause of the war. True. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, maybe I'm missing something. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that that's the point he was trying to make. Okay. The okay. the way he phrases it, I don't know. At least in right, in, yeah, he's being a bit oblique. The elements yes, among us. Yes, and, yes, 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 yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, at the in fact, the passage I'm I'm remembering might not even be in the second inaugural. But a, a, anyway, like this, the uh, uh, the 
the the notion that like you know you slaves in your presence on this country uh have caused the war <laughs> right uh that can be taken the way that you evidently read it uh or it could be taken the way that uh this speech to the african-american community leaders in washington dc was taken as a like you know who are you kidding we had nothing to do with this why should we be made to uproot ourselves from our native land in order to serve your convenience when you assholes first enslaved us and then you know embroiled us in this war um i mean like right i mean like it can be it can be taken both ways so anyway uh long story short um you know i i think i think you need to like there's just more there's a lot more to kind of lincoln's thought which is an evolving thought certainly uh than is encapsulated in this this one newspaper report um and uh or that is encapsulated in a characterization of Lincoln as a white supremacist, as sure, someone yeah, exactly. who's, yeah, who yeah. just uh, was effectively irredeemable. Uh, mm-hmm. and it was more of a problem than the solution. Right, right, yeah. I'm sure we'll come back to this, but I, but could could you speak now to the second part about the um, the, the the second main criticism that critics of Lincoln level at him? is the curbing of civil liberties. Mm, okay. If you, could, if you could help us kind of, you know, understand the background of the charge mm. and then the, the, mm-hmm. the, the merit of the, of the charge. Right. I mean, you know, um, I, think, I think the number of people affected might have been in the double digits, the low double digits. Um, so, you know, unquestionably, like, the, the the background was essentially that um, you know Lincoln uh, allowed habeas corpus to to be suspended in instances where his commanders thought that was an appropriate thing to do against, for example, agitators and and fomenters of of civil discord. Um, this didn't stop the creation of powerful Copperhead organizations uh, like the. Uh, Oh gosh, what was it called? The Knights of something or other, <laughs> the Knights of the Golden Circle, or uh, the Copperhead, meaning Northern Democrats, right? No, well, Northern Northern Peace Democrats in particular, Northern okay. Secession sympathizers. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, it wasn't the Order of the Golden Circle. I've got that wrong. It was a pre-war uh, organization, I think. Anyway, point is, um, that, you know, you you had these these secret societies of, uh, you know, anti-war. Uh, pro-secessionist Democrats in the North who were able to publish newspapers, who were able to, um, you know, cause uh, dissension in the ranks. Um, You know, people would write these letters to their friends, their loved ones who were serving in Union armies, literally encouraging them to desert uh, because the mails were not being censored. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the context where Lincoln makes uh, or allows to be made a number of strategic arrests. Um, and, you know, the people who were arrested, the most famous of whom was uh, Clement Vallandigham, um, you know, were treated not with the, all of the kindness, perhaps, that uh, that one might wish a dissident to be treated with. Uh, you know, he was jailed, he was sent 
uh, south of the uh, of the lines to rebeldom, uh, and then eventually he made his way back to Canada, from which point he ran a uh, campaign for governor of Ohio. I mean, like this is you know, uh, it didn't it didn't really stop Vallandigham, in other words. Um, and, you know, I mean, Lincoln makes a pretty good defense of himself on this charge, uh, you know, in this famous uh, public letter, a uh, letter for public, uh, you know, for publication where um, he... To Rastus Corning, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Where he's, he's saying, you know, uh, okay, we're in the middle of a war. Uh, soldiers are deserting. The punishment for desertion is death. Um, shall I execute the poor soldier boy? right who's deserted as the result of letters home from you know loved ones and family and what have you um or shall i arrest the wily agitator who indirectly put it into his head to desert in the first place right um and i think that you know that message that that justification certainly resonated with the northern public and you know and i think the certainly the the level of toleration for limitations on free speech that prevailed in uh you know the 19th century uh is well below the level that you know we would like it to be at and where we would you know wish to see dissidents of whatever stripe uh treated with uh today certainly um you know but um not to uh, not to engage in whataboutism, there was no such dissidence uh, uh, allowed or tolerated, uh, you know, in r the rebel-controlled uh, territories at all. Um, you know, people were not being arrested and then sent to the other side of uh, the battle lines uh, at the south. They were being lynched and murdered and uh, hanged from uh, the the poles of bridges and so on. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think, and, and north of, you know, uh, north of the, the battle lines, um, ordinary people were uh, quite willing, you know, to see these sorts of curbs and limitations imposed um, and, and to enforce them on their neighbors and whatever. This is a common response to wartime, you know, uh, wartime sort of agitation, right? I mean, this happens all the time. Um, it's lamentable, but I mean, it happens. And, um, oh, shoot, there was another point I was going to make about that. Oh, right, right, right. So um, the, the First Amendment um, was not really um, construed as constraining um, state action uh, at this point yet. So it was quite common, and, and talking about uh, the mails being censored, it was quite common for the U.S. mails to omit anti-slavery publications in slave states, right? So in other words, the, the, the level of you know, protection for First Amendment rights that Americans enjoyed before Lincoln was already at a lower stage, right, than, uh, than the wartime exigencies uh, required them to be at in order to take on the rebellion. So, I mean, there are things about Lincoln's legacy that sort of trouble me a little, but this isn't one of them. <laughs> yeah, what does trouble you? Because in, in the spirit of, okay, uh, I'm not sure how you would phrase it, either not having uh, 
heroes or not having perfect mm. heroes. Yeah. Uh, acknowledging our heroes to be human, acknowledging right, right, our right. models to be human. Yeah. What would you say are the, the, the strongest, fairest criticisms of Lincoln? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the one that jumps out to me is, you know, his, uh, he, he dragged his feet, you know, um, on, uh, put, in putting up with McClellan as a commander. I think, you know, he had lots of opportunities to, lots of good, solid reasons, you know, to dismiss McClellan from the service. Um, and he put up with he put up with people's crap um you know in a way that was often deleterious to the national cause um you know and uh mcclellan is 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 certainly the worst offender that way i think you can probably make a similar similar case about his uh uh attitudes to to um oh hooker to maybe butler um certainly burnside um uh franz siegel um uh, you know, these are people who were kind of uh, politically important for various reasons and um, who Lincoln kept giving commands to, even though, and sustaining in command once they had them, uh, that, you know, were, were not doing uh, the country any good and, you know, whose mistakes were leading to serious uh, effusions of blood unnecessarily. I, I mean, Probably the clearest uh, case of this is is Ambrose Burnside at uh, you know the Battle of Fredericksburg. But I mean, you know, we, we see it again, again and again. Um, McClellan has the largest army ever assembled on the American continent and refuses to do a darn thing with it, even though Lincoln peremptorily orders him to do so again and again, month after month. And why? Because McClellan is friendly with the South. He does not want to make war on Virginia. He's happy to strut around in camp and, you know, look great and, uh, you know, attend balls in, in Washington, D.C. and be feted by one and all as the, the new Napoleon. He thinks this is a perfect role for him. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole element of needing to conquer Richmond or something is, is just a job he has no appetite for. Um, I mean, I, I think the... And, 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 okay, so it's a sin of omission, but it, this is actually part of Lincoln's character as well. He's, he's very forgiving of other people's uh, flaws uh, that, you know, in a way that, that sometimes seems uh, quite puzzling. So another example along these lines uh, where, where he's, you know, being clearly too forgiving and, and not applying... A, a fair standard um, is where you know he's uh, he's arguing. Um, I want to say this might be the Peoria speech, but I, I can't remember offhand. He's arguing that um, again for kind of colonization, for you know the separation of the races, whatever. Um, and uh, he's he's saying that um, you know a a universally held prejudice uh, is whether it's right or wrong kind of shouldn't enter into the question if it's if everybody holds this prejudice we need to kind of treat it as what it is and not inquire into it too closely which is a weird thing to say given that he had just said previously uh that the universally held idea of southerners that black people belonged in bondage uh 
was not to be sustained and that, you know, everybody had an inherent right to, uh, to freedom and to, you know, earn the sweat of their, uh, 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 earn their bread with the sweat of their brow. Um, like, yeah. He, yeah, he goes, he goes straight from, from this argument against slavery as such, or more particularly against the expansion of slavery into new territory uh, into, you know, kind of flipping around and saying, well, yeah, but white people think white people ought to be number one, and, and uh, that's just not something we can ever change. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, a, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a bridge. I, it's easy to see um, how Lincoln in 1868, uh, or as an elder statesman in... You mean in 58? 68. Or? Or as an elder statesman in you know the seventies or eighties, had he lived, uh, might have bridged that gap, right? Might have completed his evolution to a full acceptance of birthright citizenship and all of its you know corollaries and ramifications, um, because that was the direction of travel he was clearly on. He never got there before his assassination, um, but. Uh, but the fact that he would even kind of entertain the idea is, as I say, a, a symptom of his, you know, too great forbearance. Um, putting up with other people's imperfections is fine, as long as you're the only sufferer. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, went beyond that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great... That's a great take on the challenges of leadership generally mm. and the specific... The specific flaws uh, mm -hmm. of Lincoln's approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've been asking all the questions. How do you how do you feel? What, what would your critique of Lincoln be? Uh, I'm curious if you had to come up with uh, with one. Yeah, I think I would. I, I think I would. I think I would really acknowledge uh, your your first one about the the, the dragging dragging the feet. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And he had a good reason for, and, yeah, you know, you I, definitely, yeah, I, I think, I think his assessment was wrong, but I think his, you know, his reasons for coming to, to that assessment were not contemptible. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, yeah. I mean, just trying, I, I definitely do this in my own life, trying to find, okay, where is the, the messy but necessary synthesis? Yeah. You know, yeah. and, uh, we can fall into a, um, kind of a both sides ism mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. that is only sometimes tenable like hey how you know how would i you know where do i really need to seek consensus mm. and where especially as chief executive right especially yeah. as commander in chief right. where do i just need to drive my point home yeah you know this yeah. is this is not you're not the the leader of the senate you're not you're certainly not a prime minister mm. you are you know, as president, you kind of need to stand above party and, and, yeah. and kind of carve this out. This is this has been something that right. that has uh, um, that has plagued many a presidency. Sure, yeah. Um, the rudderless ship critique uh, was one level that Lincoln quite a lot by his radical critics, and uh, you know, yeah, that we were too kind of too long adrift before coming to a policy. Uh, you know, that was that was a critique you often heard from. People like Count Adam Gurofsky and uh, and what have you. Um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I definitely struggle with. I definitely struggle with the the, the colonization schemes mm -hmm. that go 
you know, when, and, and, and you know much more about this than I do, but when he started, mm-hmm. like the first time I hear him talk about the colonization schemes, mm-hmm. it was kind of a mainstream thing, more even right. among abolitionists. But very, very quickly, uh, abolitionists moved, my understanding is that mm. abolitionists moved off of that. I think um, that's right, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I can definitely imagine myself as uh, as Frederick Douglass or one of the other delegation. Sure. I think during the war, right, right, being told yes. by Lincoln to yes, let me let's let, let's uh, you know stir up this policy in mm-hmm. in, in your communities. Uh, it, it, I that that would be that would be very cringeworthy. That would be that that right. would just. Right. Uh, um, caused me to roll my eyes and, yeah. and just like, how, how can I possibly take this seriously? When right. was yeah. the, I believe this was already after the point at which black soldiers were fighting. In the I Union think, Army. yeah, I think, well, well it was, if I remember rightly, it was like summer 1863 or so. Yeah. 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 So yeah, yeah, definitely. So on the broader, Part of the thing that I struggle with in trying to, especially for my students and 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 kind of helping them through this critique mm-hmm. is not through the critique. I, I, I I'm, I'm uh, I definitely have an agenda here, mm. but at the same time, it's it's um, <laughs> if I uh, if I succeed in the agenda, it will be by being fair during the process. Mm-hmm. And so to say today. Lincoln was a racist. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we grapple with this in a real, in a realistic way? As you say, part of the part of this, maybe the fundamental part of the solution mm-hmm. is to pay very close attention to what actually happened in history, as right. opposed to what we think happened, as opposed to what uh, our uncle Remus tells us what happened. Yeah. Um, th- so, what does it mean to be racist? By many standards. Uh, um, I, 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 I struggle with this because uh, how do I know that I'm not racist? I'd like mm. to believe that I'm not, but I'm sure that by many standards, just the fact of me being white in America. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so it's, is this, is this simply a, um, an unproductive rabbit hole to go down? Because it seems like I, it, it's got to be addressed. Um, Young people need to be made aware of, yeah. okay, like, that, it, it's a lot more, uh, to, to say merely that someone is up or down a racist, uh, really ignores a lot of, uh, it really ignores human nature, and it really right. ignores history. And I think it's kind of the wrong question to be asking as well. I mean, Lincoln was a citizen and a proud citizen of a society that, you know, frankly was racist, right? I mean, if you're excluding certain classes of of people from holding citizenship strictly on the basis of of skin color skin color or african descent i mean this is a racist policy right and lincoln uh you know was not prepared to go to bat for the idea that african americans should serve on juries for example he explicitly you know uh disavows this in his in his debates with uh uh with stephen douglas for example um i mean i i feel like you know, kind of talking about the policies makes a lot more sense than yeah, talking then, about the personalities. 
Yeah. So, okay, is a racist. It, what's 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 maybe the truth of that? Like, you know, do you truly believe that your race is better than another, right? Lincoln addresses this point head on and very self-deprecatingly, uh, you know, at one point during the cut and thrust, I think it was the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he says, uh, you know, if one race has to prevail over the other, of course, I, like anyone else, would prefer it to be mine. Um, you know, again, zero justification, right? He doesn't offer the slightest reason for why it ought to be white people. He doesn't claim any grand superiority or, you know, better intelligence. He doesn't claim anything for white people that he isn't quite willing to accord uh, to black people. And, the, you know, the obvious unspoken corollary there is, sure, of course, Frederick Douglass would probably prefer that black people held the upper hand in, in America in his day as well. Like, if it has to be one or the other, like, why not opt for your own? Um, and, I mean, I think that you know, kind of being on that ground of like, you know, having zero. So to, to uh, return to um, Frederick Douglass for a second, um, Douglass, who had interacted with every important, you know, white abolitionist uh, of the day, practically, um, subsequently uh, recalled that Abraham Lincoln was the one person that he had had dealings with who never in conversation reminded him that he was black never called attention to, I am speaking to you as a white person to a black person. Just talk to him as an individual to an individual. On a personal level, I think that's a surprisingly strong testimonial. It is. I mean, <laughs> which is, you know, I mean, that puts him in a higher category than William Lloyd Garrison and, than, you know, the Grimkeys even. I mean, you know, anyway, uh, the, the, so, I mean... You know, I, I, I think there's the tenor of racial discourse in mid 19th century America was a lot of chest thumping and triumphalism on the part of white people. And that was actually a common cant for like the scientifically minded, for the biblically minded, for, uh, you know, just all. Uh, educated Americans of all stripes, you know, were brought up to this idea that there was an inherent superiority of white people. And Lincoln, remarkably, never seems to have reflected this. He never seems to have, you know, thought there was anything much to this idea. Um, which I think is, you know, I mean, that's, if, if it means anything, right, if it means anything to not be especially racist, in 19th century United States while still being a white person, like, I think that's kind of it, right? I mean, right. like, <laughs> right. little though it is, right? But uh, still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the point is not, is he or is he not up and down racist? It's, right. can we contextualize him for his time? And if we can, yeah. can we acknowledge that in some ways, in yeah. some things, he actually stands head and shoulders uh, mm -hmm. you know, above the racist society. Definitely. And at the same time, it's also tricky because in contextualizing, it's so easy to fall into the trap of just saying like, oh, well, these were the rules back then, 
right? This kind of moral relativism thing and saying, here were the expectations then, and, and that was okay, right? Right. Uh, right. Like racism was not a problem until 1960. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it totally bonkers idea, right? But I mean, that's kind of the, what you're what you can accidentally end up sounding like you're arguing for, which is right. you know, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to. I, your your initial point when we began this conversation seems very relevant here. Um, to have the grace to acknowledge deep and abiding human flaws. Yes. Uh, and this would be true of um, pretty, uh, not pretty much everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, this brings us to, j just for a second, mm -hmm. I'd like to transport us back to here and now. Yeah. This sense of abiding human flaw. Yeah. Sometimes I think that, you know, religious conservatives have a better uh, acceptance mm. or understanding of this than more secular, more left-leaning types because of, uh, you know, a Christian doctrine of original sin. Sometimes I allow myself to think that. And I, I think mm. there's a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I, I would certainly, uh, I'm prepared to argue that in a very limited sense. Sure. But at the same time, Going back to that comparison between the 1619 mm. uh, project and the 1776 commission report, these right. two rival views of the world, okay. mm -hmm. it seems like what is distinguishing both of them, uh, like a, a characteristic that they both share, that, both, that, that leaps out of, at us, is an absence of this acknowledgement of... A deep and abiding human flaw. Mm. On the side of the 1619 project, you've got, look, if we, especially, and I know that some of the criticisms of the 1619 project are that, well, they don't acknowledge that some white people were on the right side of this at various mm. points in our history. Mm -hmm. But the, 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 um, the 1619 Project is a great proxy for the larger battle of what we might uh, very problematically call identity politics, right? Okay. And if you have the right identity, then you are at a higher, you are inherently at a higher level somehow in some way. Mm. There are sinful people, there are flawed people in this world, but, but kind of we're on the right side and we're the virtuous ones. And you've got a similar thing, and I, 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 I know I'm out on a limb here, mm -hmm. but you've got a very similar thing, maybe even more explicitly on the side of the 1776 yeah. Commission report. Sure. That no, 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 no. We, America and generally the, the conservatives, sure. like, and it's not just white people, even though it's white conservatives who are, who are very much forming the bulk of that. Mm. But that their narrative is, no, 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 Martin Luther King was on our side. We're claiming yeah. him. Like, that's right, a, right, right. like, and we're not for identity politics. We're on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. But they, too, are claiming this weird, no, 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 We've got the virtue. We are the virtuous mm. ones. Okay. We don't have any, we don't have any, you know, we've acknowledged the flaws in the past. Okay, yeah. that's fine. But no, we're the virtuous ones and the identity politics people, they're the the ones down there in the mire who need to realize the error of their ways. Mm -hmm. So is, is that too glib an analysis to kind of say, 
well, neither side is really acknowledging the deep and abiding human flaws. Right. I mean, I, I think it is, you know, it's, it's a little bit strong in analysis maybe, but I, yeah, I think, I think your basic idea, you know, makes sense to me. Um, I, you know, it reminds me of, so, so if we're talking about a kind of contemporary, um, you know, the, the relevance of the 1619 project to the contemporary, you know, uh, political contestation, like, um, the phrase all cops are bastards right which i, I don't know I, maybe it's my friend group or something but i see everybody in the <laughs> <laughs> seems like everybody i follow on twitter has that as part of their handle um acab uh it's just a dumb slogan right i mean like it's it's uh look are you, are you going to tell me that that uh you know the cop who rescues a rescues a black woman from an abusive husband or something is is as much a bastard as you know somebody who is shooting the said husband in the street i mean like i think i think we can hold both ideas in our minds at the same time that you know um racially directed violence is bad and that doesn't mean that like all cops are bastards right um i i you know yeah, I, I think I think kind of appropriating appropriating a, 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 an assumption of all virtue to one side of a faction is intellectually lazy, and you know, and it leads us. It's going to lead us down all kinds of you know unfortunate paths. I mean, I think so. Strictly from a self-interested point of view, for example, I think that you know the the all cops are bastards and defund the police. You know, slogans. Um, have been instrumental in galvanizing opposition to the movement for black lives. I mean, you know, the, the misunderstanding that this is engendered, you know, it divides our side, it unites theirs. And I mean, it, it, it has not served us well um, that that was, you know, one of the messages on the street, um, you know, and, and there's so many there's so many better ways of expressing these ideas, right? Like, I mean, you know, I think the concept of all cops are bastards is, you know, that if you're a cop, don't be a bastard, right? I mean, like, that would be... <laughs> wouldn't that be a great a great message to uh, to send to our fellow citizens in uniform? Um, and, you know, defund the police. Put money forward for mental health services. Put money forward for, you know, uh, nonviolent, you know, d disruptors of, 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 you know, uh, or diffusers of... of uh, confrontations or whatever like you know put money forward to counselors and and you know community groups and stuff like let's let's just express what the same ostensible concept is but in a positive way that everybody can see that there's a positive goal here right that uh you know the the idea is to do better and to be better and we can do that as a society because these don't seem like unachievable kinds of things right we're we don't have to draw this violent line in the sand right we don't have to and look we're we're gonna have fights in the streets with cops right i mean that's gonna happen that's that's going to be part of this struggle too uh you know and we can still do that while having a positive notion about what we're working for uh, right, instead of just foregrounding, you know, this us versus them mentality. Um, so, um, mm. yeah, I, I think I think yeah. you may yeah, you may have something there with the you know kind of 
the common theme being, you know, the appropriation of like our side as the, you know, the central one, the, the you know, we, we've got the, we've got the virtue. <laughs> Although I will say I, I, I get that less from Hannah Jones's, you know, 1619 project where she's more kind of focusing on a victimhood narrative, I feel, than on a virtue narrative. I know the two get kind of conflated a lot in American society. Like if you're, if you're the victim of something, you must be kind of the good guy, mm -hmm. um, which is again kind of intellectually honest and makes things complicated and sets us up for some, <laughs> like you know unintended consequences potentially. Um, yeah. Do you mean intellectually honest or dishonest? Uh, probably dishonest. Um, okay. I, I forget what I said exactly. Okay. Yeah. I mean. This goes to something, one of the things that, that, that jumps out at me, and it goes straight to your point about, okay, we know what we're against, but what are we for? Like, can, right, we, can we enunciate yeah. that clearly? Do, yeah. we, do, do we under, like, have we thought enough about that? Have mm -hmm. we thought this through? Yeah. Um, it feels connected to one of the main, you know, in the original 